You are now listening to the January 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Terry, the host of the new program, Psalms, This Is My Song, which started in July. One time, I read about how to calm down children who are angry or crying. It is said that reacting to the child by asking impatiently what's wrong or yelling to be quiet is not a good way to get children to calm down. Instead, you should try to understand how the child would feel. The expert suggests that knowing how the kid would feel by asking, Ah, are you not feeling well now? What makes you feel this way? You must have felt sad because your sister did this. You cried because you felt bad, right? Is important. It helps a child calm down when you understand how they feel, and in that way they will respond in relief that they were understood. How about you? Have you ever felt peace in your mind when someone understands you or your situation? Of course, this experience is not confined to feeling sad or upset, but you will feel more peaceful when you share your joy and happiness with someone. Among all the books in the Bible, what do you think is the book which understands the most when Christians go through happiness, sorrow, joy, and hardships? I think it is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the book in which Christians talk about their multitude of feelings for our Lord. Maybe that is one of the reasons that many Christians like the book of Psalms. When you are agonized, frustrated, dismayed, grateful, or in awe towards the Lord our God, the book of Psalms describe our feelings as if we were reading poems. When we are in despair or discouraged, Have you felt uplifted as you remind yourself of having a relationship with God and regaining strength by reading Psalm 42.5? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Or when you felt being treated unfairly, have you prayed in tears asking, O Lord, how long? By reading Psalm 13.2, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? In Christian history, so many Christians have felt consoled, encouraged, and regained strength through the Book of Psalms. In our new program, Book of Psalms, My Confession, I want to use this time to be consoled, encouraged, strengthened, and also feel thankful and give praise to the Lord through the Book of Psalms. Today, as our first time, I would like to share with you Psalms 1. I will read Psalms 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The book of Psalms starts with who is blessed. We all want to be blessed, don't we? If you want to be blessed, you can learn from Psalm 1 as it teaches ways to be blessed. The psalmist explains that blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. There are three verbs that show the changes from the blessed to the unblessed. They are walk, stand, and sit. It starts with walking in step with the wicked, then standing in the way of the sinners, and finally sitting in the position of the mockers. It explains how one person can be immune to sin and be immersed in sin as time goes by. Walking in step with the wicked means someone who devises scheme and advice without living in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who doesn't follow worldly success, which is not a resemblance of God's character, and is the one who doesn't follow selfish schemes. What about you? Do you make your plans and have thoughts that are based on the law of the Lord? Or those based on the wicked? Well, this is okay. It's not much. Nobody obeys everything that God says. God would understand this small thing. Are you living your life thinking like this and making decisions that worry the Holy Spirit? I want you to reflect on your own life. Standing in the way that sinners take means following the way they behave, the way they talk, and their habits. If we still live the same lifestyle, the same way of talking, or the same habits that we lived in the past when we didn't know Jesus, It is obvious that we are still standing in the way that sinners take. What does sitting in the company of mockers mean? Originally, mockers mean those who scoff and laugh at people. Those are the ones who don't love but show contempt and scorn. If the followers of Christ are envious of the success of others and imitate their schemes, then surely they will imitate the way they behave, share their same perspectives and habits. As they imitate those, followers will be led to self-pride and eventually they will sit in the company of mockers. When we understand the process of the changes, we might stand firm without making the same mistakes. Psalm 1 reads that the blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on His law day and night without following worldly values. It also says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Verse 6 depicts that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Know is yada in Hebrew, meaning perceive or understand as close as husband and wife. It means that our Creator Lord watches over us, understands us, and apprehends us clearly. What do you think? Would you like to be blessed? then we should know where to fixate our eyes. The world is tempting us with many things to take our eyes off our Lord Jesus Christ. If we wish to have worldly things, our eyes will be lured by temptation. But remember Psalm 1, that the world which tries to lure us in is like a chaff that the wind blows away. I hope we would all fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, live the way Jesus lived, and be blessed by God. That is all for today. 
See you next time. Thank you. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is you need biblical membership. 
I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. About 80% of the times that God talks about church in the Bible, God is referring to specific local groups of Christians who have a particular commitment to each other in that place. Let me show you just a couple of examples, starting right where you are in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So this is a book we've studied as a church before. Look at who this book was written to. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Did you hear that? Paul says, to the church of God that's in Corinth. That's a reference to a specific church, a specific group of believers, one local church. And then see the distinction. He notes, along with those who are called to be saints, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the distinction here between the global church and a local church at Corinth. Turn back one page in your Bible to Romans 16, or it may be on the same page in your Bible. Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 5. Listen to what Paul says there. He writes, starting in verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So you have a reference to different churches throughout the Gentiles among the nations, and then a church that's meeting in Prisca and Aquila's house. Now these are just a couple of examples of many where the Bible actually emphasizes local groups of Christ followers as churches. And notice, they're not called parts of churches, Paul doesn't say to the part of the church that's in Corinth or the part of the church that meets in that house. No, each of these groups is, according to God, a church. And this picture of the church is the primary emphasis in the Bible. In God's Word, local gatherings of Christians in a particular place with a particular commitment to be the church and do what the church does in that place together. So this is why, based on the Bible, we define a church last week this way, as a group of people who commit together to be and do all that God says the church is and does. So we talked about the God says part last week, biblical preaching and teaching. So all of this coming from him, we're not defining church on our own. It's what God says a church is and does, and specifically it's a group of people who commit together to be and do all those things. What makes a church a church, kind of like marriage, is a commitment together. Which then leads us to the second trait of a church that you and I need according to God's word. You need biblical membership, a commitment to a particular church as a part or a member of that church. Now, as soon as I say that word, member or membership, all kinds of thoughts or images may come to your mind based on 
what you can become a member of in this world. People have memberships at Costco or Sam's Club or country clubs. You can be a member of a social organization or a society or a political party. You can have a gym membership. Even if you don't use it, it makes you feel better to have it. Maybe there's a parallel there with church. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Maybe you're a member of a sports team or AARP. There are many ways we might think of membership, which is why I want to immediately put in your mind how God uses this word. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to read starting in verse 12. And I want to invite you maybe to circle in your Bible to, and for us together. We're going to count. Let's do this together. So kids and adults, kids of all ages, every time you see one of three words, I want you to, to shout out a number, whatever the number is next. So we'll start obviously with one and we'll just keep going up. And we're going to count how many times we see either member or part or body. Okay, member, part, or body. Whenever you hear that word, then we'll say out loud together here at all of our locations, whatever number. So we're going to count up how many there are. Okay, we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Again, we're looking for member, part, or body. Here we go. For just as the body, well done, is one and has many members, two, and all the members of the body, Four, you're doing so good. And even if you're not even paying attention to the Bible, whenever there's a pause, just shout out a number. You'll have it next, okay? So the body, so that's fourth. Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Eleven. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Keep going. Verse 17. If the whole, or we're on, sorry, I made that confusing. That's 14. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of he- be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts, 23, of the body, 24, that seem to be weaker, indispensable. And on these parts of the body, all right, you're, I'm starting to lose you. Stick with me. Stick with me. We're, we're getting there. I, you're like, we get the point. Just keep going. Here we go. 26, that we think less honorable, we stow with the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members. There it is. 36 different times in 16 short verses that God says, Christian, you're a member or a part of a body. And not just anybody, the body of Christ. So for a bit of background here, particularly for those of you who may be exploring Christianity, the body of Christ is one of the ways the Bible describes the church. And here's how this works. All of us have been created by God for relationship with God. Yet all of us have turned aside from God, from his ways to our own ways. What we in this world think is better than God. The Bible calls this sin, and our sin separates us from God. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity in judgment for our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves you and me, and God has not left us alone in this state. God has come to us himself in the person of Jesus. And then another reason God says you need to commit to a group of believers is because you need leaders who care for you and you gladly follow. Leaders who care for you and who you gladly follow. Now, we're going to talk about different things a church does and is, including biblical leadership, all throughout the series. But I want to make the connection here between why membership, belonging to a body, is so important along these lines. And I want to show you this straight from God. Hebrews chapter 13. You might turn there if you want to underline this verse or have it up here on the screen. God tells his people in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So God is specifically talking to Christians about their leaders here, the people who speak to them the word of God, the people whose way of life and faith they're called to imitate. And God is saying, there are particular leaders you're supposed to listen to and see their way of life and their faith. And then you get down to verse 17. God says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Do you hear what God is commanding you and me in his word. You and I, we need leaders who keep watch over our souls, who we obey and submit to. Now let's think about that, because there's, there's two ways to look at these verses. We could look at it from the perspective of leaders and from the perspective of people who follow leaders. But from either perspective, See the importance of Christians being committed members of a local church. I think about this from my perspective. As one leader in this church, 
Like God just told me that I and other leaders at this church will give an account to him for the people whose souls we are keeping watch over. Well, that immediately leads me to ask the question, whose souls am I accountable to God for? Every believer in the global church around the world? Oh, that's, that's a lot. Or just bring it in. Am I accountable to God for every follower of Jesus in Metro D.C.? Clearly not. No, I, along with other leaders throughout this church family, we are accountable to God for the care of every member, every part of this body. Acts 20, 28 says the same thing. Elders and pastors are responsible for caring for the flock entrusted to their care. 1 Peter 5 uses the flock entrusted to your charge or your care. That's the whole picture. God is saying to leaders, you are accountable for a particular group of people. And, so now bring this into your lap, God says to every follower of Jesus, and I include myself in this with you, the first part of this verse, God just commanded you and me to obey and submit to leaders. And you and I are accountable to God for doing that. So which leaders are you supposed to obey and submit to? Is God telling you to obey and submit to every leader that exists in the big global church? So you got to start listening to a lot more podcasts and listen to every Christian leader in the world because you're accountable to God for obeying and listening to them teach the word of God and submitting to their leadership. No. God is telling you to be in a church where you can gladly obey and submit to the leaders of that church as they lead according to God's word. This is God's good design for your life, which means if you're not in a church right now where you are gladly following the direction and counsel and teaching of leaders who care for you, then you need to commit yourself to a church where this can happen because God has commanded you to do this. If you don't, then you will be living in disobedience to God. And you will miss out on his good design for your life. Now, obviously, this points to the importance of good godly leadership in the church, which we will talk about in this series. But make the connection with, you've got to be a member of the church to do this, of a body. And it leads into the third reason why God says you need this kind of commitment. Because... You need people who will keep you from sin and from yourself. You and I need people who will keep us from sin and from ourselves. And again, this is one of the things we'll talk about on one week in this series. And you might think, well, yeah, sure, but I don't need to be a part of a church to do that. Well, let's, let's ask that question. Is that what God tells us? Because from the very beginning of the mention of church in the Bible, first time we see church is Matthew 16. Jesus talks about how church is built on the foundation of who he is. The second time we ever see the church mentioned in the Bible is Matthew chapter 18. Look at it with me. Jesus says 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? The church. There it is, second mention of the church in the Bible. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Did you follow this? Apparently, you and I don't always see it when we sin, when we go outside or against God's good design for our lives, which is why we need people who, when this happens, are committed to helping us see our sin in love so that we'll turn from it. There's a whole process for how this happens, and watch where it leads. If you or I continue in unrepentant sin, even when lovingly confronted with that, we won't turn from it, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. So what does that mean? Does Jesus mean, tell about this person's unrepentant sin to every follower of Jesus in the global body of Christ? Like, what would that look like? It's like, all right, well, we need, to get, we need to get some mediums going and start getting people's unrepentant sin out there to the whole body of Christ. Like, no, clearly Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying, tell it to the people who've committed together to be and do all that a church is and does for that person to keep them from sin. And then Jesus says, if that person still refuses to repent, Remove them from the church. That's what it means to be. Let them beat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you remove them from the church. Well, if, if that is possible to remove someone from the church, then it, well, doesn't it imply they had to be a member, a part of the church in the first place? It's exactly what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There is someone in the church identified as a member of the church, and God says, move them out of the church. Again, we'll talk about that on another week in this series. But some of you might be thinking at just this point, I don't need this in my life. I don't need people telling me when I'm sinning. And you're right. You don't. If you want to live in sin. And if you want to live for yourself. And if you want to live apart from the God who made you and loves you. And wants you to experience life in him so much that he's designed a particular community to lovingly come to you whenever you start to wander and you don't see it. And if you want the life God has for you, life to the full according to his word, then you need people who if, when they see you in sin, love you enough to call you back to Jesus and to the life God has created you to live. Now let's just put it on the table and be honest with each other. We live in a culture, even a Christian subculture, that is so individualistic. Where so many of us think, I don't need these things. I don't need to belong to a body. I can just float in and out here and there. I don't need to follow leaders. 
they exist to do what I tell them to do or what I want to do. And I don't need people keeping me from sin. I can do this on my own. And God is saying right now, you are wrong on all accounts. You need to belong to a church, a local body of Christ. And let me point out something else that I also trust is obvious. You, you can't do what we're seeing here in the Bible from home behind a screen. So for those of you who are watching or listening online, we are really glad, genuinely glad you're able to join us in this way at this time. And if this is a supplement to your meaningful membership gathering together with another local church, that is great. But if not, if this is church distant for you, then God is telling you, you need, if at all physically possible, to commit to gathering and assembling with sisters and brothers with whom you can be and do all that God says a church is and does. Amen. And I would even take that a step further. So if you're feeling really good right now that you are not online today and you're in person, you don't just need, according to God, to come and sit in a building somewhere on a Sunday. Every week or every once in a while. You know, when your kid's sports schedule or other plans allow for it. This is the idea that I think most Christians in America have of belonging to a church. I come to that building once a week. Where is that in the Bible? That we're supposed to come and maybe sing, pray, listen to a sermon, and then move on with our lives, that this is Christianity? No, what is that? Maybe it's an event, maybe it's a concert or a conference. It's not a church. Yes, the church does all of those things, prays, worships, listens to the word, but the core of a church is what? See it today. It's commitment to a group of people. It's a body of members who are committed to being and doing all that God says a church is and does together. Amen. This is why we talk about church groups all the time around here, because in a church this size, across all these different locations in the city, you and I can't be and do all that a church is and does once a week in a large room like the ones we're gathered in right now. You need, I need, we need church leaders who are close to your life and my life, to Christians who are close to your life and caring for you like family and helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus and you're working together with them on mission in the world. That's what we call church groups here, groups that do what a church is and does together. And I know some of you may be thinking right now, I'm struggling with this or that in my life right now, my family right now, my work right now. And you're telling me church membership is what I need? And based on God's word, I'm saying, absolutely. You need the body of Christ around you, 
and committed to you in whatever struggles you're walking through. You're not designed by God to walk through those alone. And even if you're not struggling, other people are, and they need you around them, committed to them. This is why we want every member of this body, this church, to be a part of a church group. If you're not a part of one, please reach out to leaders, whether here at your location, to find out how to get involved in or start a church group, a group that's doing what the church does with each other. Why? Because we all need this. You need this. I need this. First and foremost, yes, we need Jesus Christ to restore us to relationship with God. And when that happens, we become a part, a member of a body, his body, where others need us and we need them. And we realize this fully rubs against our Western individualism, against our contemporary aversion to commitment, But think about it. You were made for this. You were made by God for something bigger than yourself. I know this goes totally against the grain of the way this world wires us to think, but you were made by God. You know this. You were made by God to belong. And to be loved and to show love. And God's designed a type of community for that to happen for your good. So, Christian, I challenge you, based on God's word to us, to commit yourself to meaningful biblical membership in a local church, whether here or somewhere else. Give your life in this church or that church, being and doing all that a church is and does as you experience life in the body of Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? All across this room and other locations where we are gathered. I don't, I don't, know how this word is hitting your heart today. But I I do know in a room, in a gathering this size, there are many of you who you've not yet put your faith in Jesus. Right now you're not a part of the body of Christ, even the big picture global body of Christ. And I hope you're hearing loud and clear today that God loves you God desires you to be a member of his family, God's family. And he has sent Jesus, his son, to make that possible. So I invite you as we bow our heads all across this gathering and just to say in your heart, yes to God, yes to Jesus. To say, God, I No, I've sinned against you. I've turned aside from you in your ways. I'm separated from you, but I want to be restored to you. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and he rose from the dead. Today, I put my faith in Jesus. Please forgive me of my sin and restore me to relationship with you. 
You pray that by faith. Not by what you do, but by trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done. He brings you into his family, gives you eternal life. So for all who have prayed that, either now or you've put your trust in Jesus in the past, can we just pray, God, help us to value membership in the body of Christ the way we have just heard in your word. Lord, we, we are hearing you say that life is found in meaningful commitment to a body where we belong, organized under the leadership of people who are speaking the word of God and showing what faith looks like in action and where we're accountable to other brothers and sisters who pull us back to you when we start to wander. So, God, we pray individually whatever needs to be done in our lives to, to put this word into action. Give us the courage and commitment to do that. And God, we pray together we want to be the body of Christ you are calling us to be, that you created us to be this body of Christ here at NBC, God, we, we want to be the people, the church that you are calling us to be. So help us, like no strings attached, oh God, whatever you want us to do, however you want us to move forward in the days ahead, we say we're yours. Make us the body of Christ that is most pleasing and glorifying to you. And we trust that it will be most good for us. We pray all of this according to your word, which we are so thankful for. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Words, he says, arrogant words of many, they, the bad guys, entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, who those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom in their twisted words of saying, you're going to be free from sin, but they're not actually promising them true freedom because of their twisted words. While they themselves are slaves to corruption, for what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. And guess what? And Peter, inspired by the Spirit, says, and many will follow their sunshine. There's going to be a ton of, of believers with temporarily ruined walks following their sensuality, their twisted, molded words, following their licentiousness, the green light to follow Jesus and live in sin, basically. See that? Very sad. Now, at this point, you might get discouraged. Many. Wow. And, I, and you start looking at it, you go, oh, man, it's all over the place. But don't be discouraged. God said it would happen, but don't let it happen to you. God said it would happen, but don't you be one of the many that follows. Don't you be. Because there are serious consequences for the believer who falls into twisted teaching, who lives a temporal life according to his own desires, rather than the way of truth. The way of them rather than the way of truth. Notice the other Consequence, the way of truth will be maligned. Verse 2 again, and many will follow their sensuality. That's their brand of wickedness. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Many will follow their way, and the way of truth thus will be maligned. Now the them, who is that speaking of? Is it the false teachers or the people who are following? It seems to be pointing to the many that are following. 
You see, when believers follow a way that is not right, because of them, the right way is maligned. The way of truth. The term maligned speaks of spoken against or blasphemed. And how many believers do you know who are caught up in this, who speak badly about truth in times or good churches? You see it. The way of truth will be reviled or spoken against. True believers are letting God's word weed out sin and make them more like Jesus. And these bad guys are trying to exploit people to follow their own desires in the context of following Jesus. But it's done secretly. They secretly introduce destructive heresies, and many are going to follow and fall into it. And the way of the truth will be maligned. I find this true. I see it. People caught up in worldly churches, seductively led by false teaching, air that has snuck in. Inevitably, those who mock good churches. Very sad, but God said it would happen. So then we must understand that teachers will come in among us. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, teaching that separates us in a sense from Jesus in our walk with him. They will do it through molded plastic words, twisting scripture, arrogant words of vanity. And we need to understand that many will follow their brand of licentiousness and the way of truth will be maligned. But why would someone do these things? Why would someone deliberately do this? Look in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We get to the root of what's going on inside the bad guys. And Peter will elaborate on it later on in this whole chapter. We'll see it. But this is a summary statement. In their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. The term greed could be translated covetousness. It speaks of an intense, selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, position, or gratification. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I think greed is a good translation. This is what's going on inside. This is why they do it. Look at 2 Peter 2.14. Just down a little bit. This is the bad guys having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And look at this. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Their hearts are trained in greed. And guess what? They love the paycheck they get for what they do. They love the wages of it, whether it's money, whether it's gratification, whether it's elevation or power, they love it, and that's why they do it. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is an interesting term translated exploit. It literally means to carry on business. Their business, what they do, is to exploit you with false words. Plastic molded words, that's their business because they're greedy. They love the wages that they get from doing it. They love what they get out of it. Their intense, sinful, selfish desire for wealth, power, position, gratification, whatever it is that drives them in that, it's their business to exploit you. You see a false teacher introducing false things to get people to fall after lusts, 
gain wealth, prominence, sexual gratification. This is their business. This is what they do. We need to see this. And they love the paycheck they get for their sin. Like Balaam. Those who do not love Jesus, although they might say they do, they love the paycheck they get for their sin as they carry on the business week in and week out of exploiting you with false words. Wow. Brothers and sisters, we need to see how wicked these people are, men who teach God's word secretly introducing destructive heresies, falsely twisting scripture so as to turn God's grace into a license to sin. That's what's going on. This is what drives them. Their daily business of sin is what drives that is greed. And you might say, this is depressing. And it is, right? These bad guys in the true church and many following. That's depressing. What can be done about it? Well, we're going to see in our study of Second Peter chapters 2 and 3 that we need to be on guard lest we be held captive by the error of unprincipled men and we fall from our steadfastness. We need to be on guard. So these false teachers will be among you, secretly destructive heresies, twisted teachings. Many will follow after them. The way of truth will be maligned. They do it because they're driven by their accursed, greedy hearts. And that's their business, to exploit believers. That's their business. So what's God going to do about this? Look at the end of verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. God says through Peter, their judgment is long ago not idle. It means the judgment is not just sitting there doing nothing. It is hanging over their heads. It is right there ready to happen. Their judgment is right there. And their destruction is not asleep or drowsy. They're going to be destroyed. They haven't slipped from God's imminent judgment. He hasn't forgotten about it. It's not idle. It's not asleep. As we saw earlier, it is imminent. They are being kept, verse 9, under punishment for the day of judgment. We'll see that. Just like those in the Old Testament who are being kept, they're being reserved also for punishment. They will be destroyed, verse 12. Black darkness has been reserved for them, verse 17. Eternal punishment in hell is assured for these people. It is assured. And it doesn't appear in any way, shape, or form that God says they're going to repent and be saved. Because later on, in verse 15, they forsook the right way. They understood it. They had knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 20. And they went the way of Balaam to by their greed, exploit God's people. Their judgment is sure. It is sure. That's why we don't try to mess around or redeem false teachers. We don't mess around with them. We don't try to talk them into doing the right thing. We need to be aware and stay away, as we're going to see. So, brothers and sisters, we have seen that we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness to the true knowledge of Jesus through his precious and magnificent promises. Everything we need for our relationship with Jesus is in his word. Everything we need. And Satan wants to attack that relationship that we would be ineffective, that we would not be useful, that we would be unfruitful. And how he attacks it is through a subtle attack on the word of God. And we see those attacks come in the context of turning God's grace into a license to sin, licentiousness, sensuality, whatever it might be. So we've seen here that there are going to be 
these bad false teachers in the church. It's an absolute certainty, just as there were false prophets. We've seen what they do. They twist, lessen, mold their words so as to pervert the scriptures. They are in the business of exploiting believers with false plastic words. These arrogant words of vanity. Just listen to sermons of some of these preachers. You'll hear it. We have seen many will follow their licentiousness. Many will buy into it because it's a green light to follow Jesus and keep sinning. Following your desires. At least they think. And we've seen that the way of truth will be maligned. It will be spoken against because of them. We've seen that the false teachers do it because they're greedy. They're accursed children having hearts trained in greed. They want pleasure, money, power, prestige, whatever it might be, and they love the wage they get for exploiting believers. They love it. The wages of unrighteousness. But their judgment is imminent. It is not asleep. It is not idle. They are going to be judged. And that's what the rest of chapter 2 is about, how bad they are and how God is not missing a beat, that they are going to be judged. So how are we to respond? Well, first of all, this is a warning that we need to watch out for those who would subtly twist the word, secretly introduce destructive heresies. We need to test everything and hold fast to that which is good, right? We need to test the word of God which we hear. The Bereans, they tested what the Apostle Paul said, and they were counted as more noble than those in Thessalonica. They tested what was said by the word of God. We need to watch out for those who would twist the word in such a way that would give us an opening to continue in sinful attitudes, actions, or behaviors. An opening to have heart attitudes that are wrong. An opening to live a life that is not in accordance with God's word. So subtle. We need to be on guard for those who would introduce destructive heresies. And how are we on guard? We need to be fed the word of God that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and deceitful scheming. Lest we fall from our steadfastness. And many have fallen from their steadfastness, by the way. Many. There are some of you here today who have a ruined relationship with Jesus because you have fallen for teaching that is not ultimately from God, but from man. You've been given a green light by so-called believers who say so much about Jesus, but do not address sin. You need to confess and repent. God will restore you. You will be forgiven. And brothers and sisters, those of us who stand, we need to take heed that we do not fall, that we do not fall from our steadfastness. I want to close again with the exhortation that Peter gives in the end of chapter 3. Let's turn there. Chapter 3. In light of these people, the untaught and unstable distort the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction, he says in verse 17, You therefore, chapter 3, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that these people are going to rise and do this stuff, knowing they're going to do it, he says, be on your guard, lest you be carried away by the air of unprincipled men. You fall from your own steadfastness. But instead of that, in the context of this book, through the word of God, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.